You're listening to Tuned with Alastair Atkin from the Atkin Guitars Workshop. I'm Alastair Atkin, and in this podcast, I'm going to chat to a few of the music industry people I've been lucky enough to meet over the last 25 years of being a guitar maker. Amongst them are musicians, songwriters, composers, and fellow guitar makers. Some of them you'll have heard of, and some of them you might not. This week I'm talking to Ollie Knights from Turin Breaks. They first came to prominence in the late 1990s and are now celebrating the 20th anniversary of their debut album, The Optimist. Ollie talks about the beginning of Turin Breaks and how that album came about and a little bit about that recording process. So sit back and enjoy the show. How you doing? Uh, I'm all right. Um, uh, I'm. I lurch from everything's going to be fine to then reading the news and reading about new strains and new vaccine-resistant strains and all that kind of stuff of the virus, and then thinking, "Oh my God, it's going to be like this for years." Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> apart from that, <laughs> apart from that. I'm doing surprisingly okay, you know. <laughs> We've had a bit of a ban on news in our house at times. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's it's just like a yo-yo, isn't it? So uh, it's so it's it's um hey well it's it, I like it's your, what it I, is. I really like your lockdown hair, Al. It's, I think we've all got lockdown hair now, haven't we? I can see we go to the same hairdresser, <laughs> and I think the facial hair is probably a bit similar as well. <laughs> yeah, we're at similar stages of like bunker mentality. I can see. Did you have a haircut since last March? No, I oh. haven't. I haven't had a haircut in a, in almost a year now. Yeah, I think I had mine in January last year, and I said yeah. I'm not going to cut my hair until this thing's over yeah i had a very is weird i had a very similar idea a very similar concept and i really didn't think my hair was going to get this long that's how optimistic i was (laughs) (laughs) well i haven't had long hair since i was about 20 so uh, i'm i'm sort of enjoying it but um we'll see how it goes (laughs) grow keep grow it while you got it man that's my my yeah Yeah, that's what my wife keeps saying. A lot of people be envious, you know. So, yeah, yours, uh, yours is good. Yours is nice and thick. So um, you're in London right now, aren't you? You're, yeah, you're, uh... yeah, I'm in in London, in southwest London, uh, just kind of yeah, tucked tucked up in my house. Uh, I I've got I'm lucky enough to have a little studio out in the garden, like a a kind of outdoor sort of soundproof studio space um but the internet's really rubbish so not so i'd i'd love to be doing this in there because it's it's so quiet and nice but um uh, i've never managed to get particularly great internet in there so i'm actually up in my attic up in the top of the house instead right now lovely jubbly and uh, you got you got kids haven't you are they learning anything <laughs> oh god i mean i've got two teenage daughters uh, and they one of them's doing in her final year of gcse's uh, and i still can't work out how she's doing or what the hell's going on oh, and i oh. every single day i try and get an inkling of what's going on i don't even even without covid i reckon i'd still be a bit like this because i'm kind of rubbish at school stuff but um but i just can't work out what's going to happen with her at Mm. all the younger ones sort of she's not worrying me so much because she's she's not in the kind of in the middle of of exam stuff but yeah i just don't know what the hell's going to happen man it's hard, isn't it? I, I, I'm only imagining that they'll all be all right, or a lot, lots of them will, and and we'll just have to push on through. Everyone's in the same boat. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's not so bad when everyone's everyone's in the same boat. Then, 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 in a weird way, you kind of calm down, don't you? It's is when if if it was only me, I'd definitely be more freaked out. But you, there's no point in even freaking out about anything right now. So. No, no. And uh, I, I mean, so have you been doing much music? Yeah, I have actually. I've been doing, I've kind of, the during the first lockdown, I didn't do anything. And I just would like, this is my secret wish to have had some time off from 
touring and making music and all the stuff I've kind of non been doing kind of more or less non-stop for 20 years and always secretly thought god i'd just love like a few months off wouldn't that be amazing just to not have anything to do for a while and just kind of let my brain sort of seek out new stuff so the first lockdown i kind of secretly quietly just enjoyed that mm -hmm. part of it at least um then the second lockdown i started thinking huh I should probably use this time and then by this lockdown um i've kind of been using it a lot more so i've been recording i actually got a four track cassette uh machine a, a tascam 244 ah old school and, uh, yeah really old school like one of the really old ones uh, i got it off ebay every now and then i'll get like a, an old bit of gear because through the process of being slightly fascinated by it i'll kind of almost accidentally start writing and making a load of new stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's been really good. I've absolutely loved just the simplicity of like recording really simple stuff again um, in that way. So that's kept me from going too mad. I've also been doing like, I still, because I've got the studio, I can do like, I do a lot of vocals for things and, you know, send people stuff. I'm, all, I'm making a kind of, film production type music with um phil who used to phil martin who used to play uh keyboards for oh, yeah. Break yeah before he moved over to los angeles so he's kind of getting into more of the kind of film and tv world over there and and um has kind of been sending me stuff to write bits for and on top of so i've been doing that that's kept me quite busy been working with tom spate who is um Oh, I know Tom. Yeah, yeah in fact, too. Yeah, he, yeah. He, in fact, I believe he he's a big fan of Atkin guitars, actually, uh, and he's um, he's still writing with me and Gail. We've had to kind of go um, go th go go on to kind of virtual writing sessions rather than in real space, um, but that actually works quite well because we because we've done a lot of writing together over the last sort of like four years. We we kind of know our process with each other so well that it still works even even over the internet okay everyone's got a job to do kind of thing and they're, yeah, they can yeah, go away like, and get on with their thing exactly like i don't even bother picking up a guitar for those because i'm so much slower at working out what chords are compared to gail and tom <laughs> who, are, who are just like streets yeah. ahead of me um I, I don't even bother picking up my guitar for the, those sessions anymore. I just literally grab a notepad and a pen and I'm like, right, I'm just worrying about what the vocals are doing and that's it. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it works really well. And actually, we, we tend to have something pretty decent within about like 45 minutes. Fantastic. Which, which is really good. It's really efficient because we're not like... When, when we get together in real time, we're always worrying about like what we're going to have for lunch and stuff like that. You know, that's <laughs> a big deal. Um and we can't do that, you know, when it's like this. So it's very efficient. So between all of these different things and slowly talking about the next Turing Breaks album as well, which is, I think, has mostly kind of been written really over the last couple of years, um, There, there's things sort of like there's enough keeping me quite busy. In fact, I'm, you know, I'm still pretty much doing doing music most of the time, really, when I think about it. Um, so I've not, yeah, I've managed to kind of not go too crazy. The whole not touring thing um, is definitely a bit um, worrying. And, you know, we're kind of, we're hoping, like we've got a big, fairly, well, a really big tour at the moment booked in for the end of this year uh, for the Optimist 20 yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort of a, a, an overview of what, what's going on, yeah. Okay, so what's the plan with the stuff you're writing with Tom? Well, I think the stuff with Tom really is is just writing, really writing a load of stuff for his current new album. In fact, we finished all of that, and that's that's coming. I think his current his, his second album's coming out this year. I can't mm -hmm. remember exactly when, but I think it might be like technically the end of the summer but i think there's a whole bunch of singles and stuff leading up to it uh so we've written um i think we've written about half the tracks on that co-written half the tracks on that and then but he's so like tom is so unbelievably driven like he, i've never known anyone like him right. you 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's incredibly driven and he's like he's already like he's already sussed out what his third album is and how that's going to be and what it needs to be he's so like yeah he's just a different animal altogether when it comes to being sort of like driven along um so he's already getting us to kind of write stuff with him for that um so he, there's this kind of it's a constant like output of of new stuff for his for the project tom and his whole thing mm-hmm. really. and luckily you know i mean it's great for for me because it's you know he does a lot of the legwork and i get to just sort of turn up and sing nice bits of top line on top of yeah. it yeah it's quite a nice fairly straightforward easy thing for me to do you know yeah sort of pressure off a bit and uh yeah i i always love it when people like yourselves collaborate with other artists you know something good usually happens from it and uh, yeah. a lot of people don't seem to do that so often which is a shame but um yeah it's i think it's one of those things that artists can be quite um i suppose quite protective and and like anyone like in that field a bit um probably a bit like really a bit nervy about about kind of opening up that bit of their world to other people like like actually we went through a period of writing of co-writing with loads of people for a couple of years we'd have a hell of a lot of sessions with people and in the end it started to feel a bit like speed dating you know it was <laughs> like people would just turn up at your door and they'd be like hi i'm so and so and i've just signed to ireland and um you're my 70th session this year (laughs) you know and it would just it was sort of like started to feel a bit like if we weren't careful we'd end up hating songwriting like because it just Mm -hmm. felt like it was turning into this weird factory yeah like this idea of songwriting that you might have if you were an a and r guy rather than what it's really like if that's what you sort of spend most of your life doing and that and we actually kind of put forgive the pun but put the brakes on that a little bit because it did start to feel a bit like this is just like being in a really weird factory and you know it's gambling you're just gambling with your time it's not like you're being paid you know you're, you're just hoping that something works for an artist and eventually ends up on a record it's a whole big road to go down and i personally i wasn't like that prepared to go down it because i thought no i'm still i still like making art you know I still, yeah. I'm still interested in the art side of making it myself and like if if i end up co-writing with someone it will be because of the art it won't be because i'm just this weird drone um that's just there to sing on stuff all day long yeah so yeah so it it it, it taught us some stuff it was a good experience to do it because it kind of taught us in a way what we maybe didn't want to end up doing forever mm-hmm. and uh, and it makes me it made me appreciate the times when it worked really naturally like with the the thing that we've got going with tom which is there's some sort of chemistry worked out where it doesn't feel like work. It just feels like we're we're doing some yeah. stuff, you know. So right, I've, we've got to get round to it because I can't believe it's twenty years since the Optimist came out, and I remember I can remember sitting on a train in Cologne Station with my headphones on before I ever met you, and just had the Optimist on, and I, I can literally hear seventy four. 72, 72. And uh, sorry, that's a different song. And I just thought, I've, I need this right now. Acoustic music, it's, you know, it was perfect for me. Your story seems quite exciting, really, because I, it sounds like you, you guys really were the underdogs and, and you got sort of into the, the music business almost sort of by accident or not expecting to, to get much out of it. And that first album was a, a real success, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it was. We didn't expect that kind of level of success for it at all. We really didn't. Um, we had me and Gail had sort of always enjoyed messing about with four tracks and eight tracks and acoustic guitars in our bedrooms and stuff, and liked that kind of music. Like we liked American bands like Sebado uh, and Smog and. Bonnie Prince Billy or the, the mm-hmm. Alice Brothers and all these kind of, what were they? They were a kind of lo-fi type of songwriter, mostly from America, but um, but that had these, that, that would make, their music didn't sound professional. It sounded kind of homemade and it was really like, it, it was, 
it really made you feel like you could do it with your mate, like you could do that. You know? It was kind of the precursor to say Bon Iver, wasn't it? And and it could have been recorded in a shed somewhere, and yeah. it, it did make you feel like it was possible to do it yourself. Yeah, yeah. and and I think that that helped us a lot uh, because it we had our own version of that in us. Um, so that was sort of our mentality in a way was just like we'd get together and and just make these these nice little weird folky lo-fi things. Uh, and then at the same time, like uh, just around that time, I, I was at um, I was at art school doing a film degree at Central St. Martins. And um, like I just ne- happened to need a load of kind of guitar-y, nice sounding uh, music to be able to use in films. So I actually went out and bought an eight track. Uh, in fact, no, it wasn't an eight track. It was a four track mini disc recorder. Remember those? They just, they kind of came out for a couple of years. Um, it was Roland like, did it for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yam- this was a Yamaha one. Right. But yeah. it sounded amazing because it was like really clean and you could do, you could make these amazing recordings, but on this little box, yeah. you know. Uh, and that was a really important moment because we suddenly went from sounding very scratchy and really kind of lo-fi to suddenly it was like we were able to to kind of get above that sonically somehow. And so we we did a bunch of recordings around that time. This would have been in like 2000, no, this would have been in 1996, 97, around mm-hmm. that time. And they felt really good. Um, so we made a cassette sort of just for ourselves and our mates like of this stuff and it was a mishmash of like weird surreal folky kind of influence songs and bits of almost film soundtrack music very guitar led but also like with kind of ambient stuff happening in it and some of it would like be really droney and go on for ages and then you'd suddenly be in the middle of a of a song and we made a couple of these little cassettes and one of them ended up in a, in our friend's um, car and she happened to be giving a lift to a guy that lived in Brighton uh, uh, and she was giving him a lift back to Brighton and she was playing one of these tapes that we'd made like just for ourselves and our mates and he sat up in, in the car and said, who's this? What's this? I've never heard this before. And she said, oh, these are just my two friends that like make this uh-huh. kind of weird music. And he was like, right, this is going to be my next release. And she was like, what do you mean? And he'd, he'd just he just received a small grant from, I think it was like the Prince's Trust or something like that mm-hmm. to start a little record label. And he'd, I think he'd put out one thing and he was looking for like his next thing to put out. So we immediately, he immediately wanted to put out this thing. And we were like being rung up by him. And he was saying like, right, you've got to come up with a name and <laughs> you know, gets pretty serious about this and I want to manage you guys and like we'll we'll take it to the next level I really think this is special and we were like really like we 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 were just doing this for fun like I I I had no intention of being a professional musician you know mm-hmm, I thought I, was, mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be working in film you know and yeah. Gail I think Gail was always a bit more interested in in that sort of music life but I think he'd almost gotten over it by that stage. He'd already been in a few bands and it hadn't worked out and all this stuff. And he'd kind of decided, oh, well, I better go to college or something and kind of get on, yeah. get on with the rest of my life. So we both were, were a bit like perplexed at first that this guy really wanted to do it. But it was also really exciting. And we were like, well, yeah, of course we'll put out an EP. You know, that this sounds great. That's a dream, isn't it? It's a dream moment. It's, it's uh, a dream moment. It, yeah. it, it, was a, it was a very kind of fortunate kind of bit of timing, really. And it happened just at the time in our lives when we were kind of young enough and, uh, uh, you know, unencumbered enough to be able to go, yeah, all right, sod it. We'll, we'll just yeah. see what happened. So we put out this thing and called it the Door EP, called ourselves Turin breaks which was just like a random pretty much a random name that we just really thought sounded cool and didn't sound like anything in particular so it would sort of become just the name of the music yeah and really quickly we started suddenly noticing that it was things were happening with this ep like it was turning up in cool record shops and it was doing things like people like Mowax Records were getting in contact with us and stuff. James Lavelle from Mowax, all these really cool labels like Heavenly, Domino, mm-hmm. yeah. Domino Records, who I was a massive fan of anyway and had, yeah. and had grown up listening to all of their 
stuff you know they put out things by Elliot Smith and all these great like pavement just yeah. so many cool things suddenly Domino Records were like they seemed to really get it and they could see that it was like a, a, a almost a bit of a British version of that type mm-hmm. of music so it got very exciting and we had a crazy like from 1999 which was when we put out the that EP up to about 2000 that whole year was just like pressing fast forward on our lives and we went from having no intention of ever being a band or playing this stuff live in front of people to sort of doing gigs the gigs getting really packed with A&R people to having like 12 record major record label offers on the table wow it all in the space of a year so it it, it was absolutely mad you know um and and then right at the end we 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 met Philippe Askely who um signed us to it eventually did sign us to Source Records who were kind of funded by EMI but were essentially an independent label they were run as 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 an independent label and they had their own thing and they weren't told what to do and we really liked them because they he was really clever Philippe he said to he said to us look I don't want you to do anything other than what you're doing I will, it will be my responsibility to bring the spotlight onto what you're doing, right. the spotlight of the mainstream How to you. Cool. Yeah. And, yeah. and that was it. That's all he had to say. And, and funnily enough, none of the other labels had, had said something as simple as that to us. Mm. Everyone else wanted to develop it and do this with it and do that with it. And we just wanted someone to say, you're already exactly it. Don't yeah. do anything else. Just do what you're doing and I'll do the rest. Um, and he said that, and we were like, sounds absolutely perfect. Let's go for it. So we signed on a Friday, and on the Monday after signing, we were at Conk Studios recording the Optimist LP. It was literally, just, we literally went that fast. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, oh. right, we're straight in. So we did that, and we uh, and we spent about four or five weeks, it might have even been six weeks, back in the days when you could spend six whole weeks, mm-hmm. you know, sitting over an Eve console uh, I mean, wow, absolutely great. And um, and we slowly carved out the Optimist, and we used we really used all those four track recordings and all as a real strong blueprint for yeah. that record. And then even by that stage, we still didn't we still didn't think that it would cross over as much as it did. We thought, okay, cool, maybe we'll be a a kind of cool little band for a couple of years, and that 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 maybe that's all this will be. I don't we we didn't really think beyond that. And then literally, you know, we were literally on top of the pops within within like three months. It was it was it was absolutely it just kicked off. Um, it, it got nominated for Mercury. And that seemed to be the moment where it was like it just saturated across. Um, yeah. Uh, and it was so, oh, man, it was. Yeah. What a, what a fun ride it was. But yeah, totally, really not expected and a, and a real steep climb into into the mainstream. I, I mean, I, when I hear the sound that you guys were making, although, you know, it's an acoustic duo, it was pretty ballsy. And, and like, you've got a guy playing slide guitar a lot all the way yep. through this album, you know, and, and you're, you're singing about stuff that's, you know, they're not love songs. They're, you know, and, and they're quite heavy. You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. It's got some real emotion, and for, for me, that was a, a real sort of relief to hear something like that happening at that point. And of course, there were lots of people out there doing acoustic music at the same time, but you you really did have your own niche there. I think that um, both of you being such good guitarists as well, and obviously Gale's got his own sound, his complete yeah. own sound. Did he always use the slide? Uh, was that from very early days? Um, he did. It it was it was definitely something he did do. I mean, he he, I think he really did grow up listening to blues. You know, Gail was mm-hmm. like he had a real true love for it, and he really got it. And um, so Slide was not alien to Gail at all. Like he always had one around. We decided at some point that 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 was almost like our, our almost a bit of our USP. Like there was something about having that slide at, at that time that sort of slice of Americana, but shot through with this very, in a way, something that lyrically could only really be coming out of like urban London at that point in time, at the turn of the century, so to speak. Yeah. It, there was something about those two elements that 
was so cool. Um, and also, yeah, it, it just was part of Gail Sandler. He's so natural with that, even now. Like, he'll often oh. pick up a slide, even in a writing session, he'll pick up a slide because you realise that's his that's his voice, you know, that's mm-hmm. his way of finding interesting n- notes and interesting melodies and interesting little things that just sparkle and sort of bring something out. And he, he's very natural with it. So I, there, there was a lot of reasons why he picked up that slide, I guess. But yeah, it was, a, it was a key thing. And you're right, it is all over that record. But I never even, it wasn't even a surprise to me because that was like, that was what Gail did and that was part of our sound. But listening back, I realised how overtly slidey that record yeah. is. Covered in it, you know. Well, it's also, I mean, a lot of people play slide, but they perhaps can't play it that well. But he's really good at yeah, it, he's isn't he? Got, he's, he's definitely got his own thing, though. What I like about it is he's got a bit of a punk mentality with slide. Like, he does not like smooth, that's, you know, that, that slide sound that's almost perfect. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. He's not into that at all. Like, he, he, he likes it where it's, it's really hitting the strings and it's, you can hear that person behind the slide it's it's also quite a brash tone isn't it and and he sort of he uses a a, a, an acoustic guitar a lot of the time through an amplifier which to anyone who knows about that world it's kind of it's a pretty full-on sound but um it just fits so well uh yeah yeah yeah. he's he's a real master of it and and it's funny he he has yeah he he um he's made that set up very much his own you know I don't. Yeah, you just don't see it, do you? You just don't see that happening very much. No, no, it's 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 superb. So, so okay, you're in the studio for six weeks. Who else is on that album? And how did you choose the the art, the, the musicians who were going to play on that? Did you know them beforehand? Um, so no, we didn't. We didn't uh, know any of them. It was all like like everything in those days. It was like making the best of chance, really. So. The engineer who was working on the album for the first half of the the recording was a guy called Charlie Francis, and he knew Rob, who is our current drummer, Rob Allen. He knew him from, I think, mostly from like the High Llamas and various bands that Rob's played with and still is playing with. He knew him, so he said, oh, look, I've got this guy that is a great drummer, he's a really nice bloke, and you'll, you'll get on with him. Uh, and we did a bit of rehearsing with him and kind of um, knew that he'd be involved. Don't don't forget as well that, you know, we were a duo. So the idea of bringing drums in was was a big deal. It was like a huge new element. But we'd always loved drums and we always totally intended to bring to bring them in as soon as we could. Um, so it was super exciting suddenly having drums on this stuff that had never had drums on it before. So we, it was a combination of working a little bit with Rob and he ended up on, I, I actually only ended up on one track on Underdog on the actual record. But we also had a a, moment, a really important time with a guy called Andy Newmark. Who, oh, right. Uh, is an yeah. absolute legend. And if you look, I mean, if you Google Andy Newmark, you'll see what, I won't go into everything well, he's been on, but let's just say he's been on everything. Yeah, I mean, for people who might be listening, it's it's John Lennon, Pink Floyd, Sly and the Family Stone. You don't need to say any more than yeah. that, really, do you? <laughs> yeah, he, he is the funkiest drummer, you know, and, and someone had his number and said, I'm going to try and, you know, get Andy Newmark down to, to meet you guys and see, if, see what happens. So he turned up Andy Newmark turned up at Conk Studios for I think we had him for about three days we could afford him for about three days and he I mean it was it was the best moment because he had no preconceptions with us he didn't know us he didn't know what the hell was it was all about we just played him what we had and he was like okay and uh, this this is great let's let's just get go in the room I think the only thing we said to him was look Everyone thinks we're trying to be Simon and Garfunkel, but we really aren't trying to be Simon and Garfunkel. There's a kind of inner edginess and strength and mm-hmm. punch to this music that we want to bring out more. And we think that that's, that's what the drums could do. Um, and that was pretty much all we had to say. And he played those drums louder and heavier than I've ever heard anyone play. And he treated the music in the soulful punchy kind of um non almost like non-orchestral 
way that mm-hmm. he, he treated it more like a soul record, you know? Right. Yeah. And that was the key because that twisted, that twisted everything. And we suddenly had this fire on the record that we loved. And he played on about half the tracks. Um, and, and that was a key moment because that balanced the record in this whole different way. So you had these like super delicate kind of songs like feeling oblivion and, and, um, the road and all the kind of mm. real old, almost old school folky sort of um, acoustic songs that were very subtle, and then you they suddenly be be cut next to something like Mind Over Money or or um, uh, the State of Things, which yeah. Uh, yeah, if you listen to what's happening, it, it things are being hit hard. It's not it's not um, some mellow acoustic kind of thing. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really, it's really different. Um, and that became the key, and, and 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 so that was a massive moment. And then, other than that, I think uh, most of the bass was done by either Gail, who's a great bass player. In fact, Gail's one of my favourite bass players. Really? He, yeah, hey. man, I love. What, I always love what he comes up with. Um, but then we met Ed. Yeah. Who we brought in? We brought Ed in because we knew he could play double bass, and we thought let's get some a bit of double bass on this record um so he came in at that point really as the double bass player uh and and gail gail and phil our then manager sort of took care of the of the electric bass stuff and uh it wasn't until after we'd recorded and we we needed to kind of recreate that record live that we started thinking who the hell are we gonna work with to to, to turn this into a band and out of all the different sort of people we'd met Ed and Rob were the ones we liked the most, just yeah. as characters, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, and we knew that there was some sort of chemistry there. And that chemistry is, you know, stronger than ever 20 years later. Like, and, and you can, you know, that is why, that's why we've got a good rep live. That's why we're the way we are, is because of that chemistry between the four of us, I think. Um, so it really was a one of those chance but very important moments you know yeah so i mean you know people think of turing breaks at the beginning very much as a duo don't they and and they've just said i mean it's been a band for 20 years really hasn't it and um yeah oh yeah they've been there they've been there since since the the minute we became like a in any way a public thing uh they've been there we, we, we even in the early days especially we still toured as a duo as well because we could do we could do both we could be the full band and then like we could break off me and girl could go off and do like a smaller tour as a duo yeah and kind of get in and out of countries really cheaply and quickly so we we did both but um you know the the band side of it became stronger and stronger o- over each successive record to the point where it really it feels like a four piece more than anything now with you know me and gail i suppose are still like the the dads of, right. <laughs> of, of the project if you like in a way but um but rob and ed are just so fundamental to it you know uh we i wouldn't dream of of kind of doing stuff without their their them involved in some way mm-hmm. because for turing they, they've you know they've put in almost as much blood sweat and tears as we have yeah, well, it comes across when you see them play. They own that music as well, it, and and as a band, it really does. Yeah, it rocks, doesn't it? I think that's always been the fun for us. Is is surprising, you know? Is is the look on people's faces when they realise that this isn't necessarily what they might have expected? You know, mm-hmm. that's always been almost the point for us. Is 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 that little moment of like, oh, this is pretty heavy. Yeah, you know, but yet it's acoustic guitars. Uh, you know, it's it, it's 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 a fun thing. I mean, you know, there were other bands doing the same thing. Gomez, you know, we, we grew up listening t- to bands like Gomez, and that they they had a similar thing, you know, in the Beta band as well. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Where it was surprisingly heavy, yeah. even though there was an acoustic kind of layer to it. There was a lot more than just oh this is music for sort of chill time you know yeah, that always yeah. feels like a weird excuse i hate that you know i'm not interested in that at all because it just feels like a style over over mm-hmm. over content almost and yeah turing breaks was almost like meant to be 
I suppose like the the antidote to that idea, which is like that just because it's an acoustic guitar doesn't mean it's not going to absolutely rock, you know. Exactly, it can still kick ass, can't it? Um, so when you got um, you'd finished the album and and you know you were it obviously went down very well and you found yourselves touring and supporting some really big acts at the time. How did how did you take to that? Because had you done much live playing at that point? No, we hadn't. I mean, you know, the truth is it was a weird journey for us because we didn't do that thing that most bands do, which is spend years cutting their teeth on in the toilet venues and sort of building up and building up. <laughs> that just had not happened to us. We we found ourselves making a record first and then having to basically work out how the hell to do it live and how to be live. Like mm-hmm. I, I barely sung through a PA system wow. until we were in front of thousands of people like that. It was ridiculous, which in a way is incredibly fortunate, but in another way is also incredibly dangerous because you could just, you know, it could all just go tits up so quickly and you might find that you can't handle it. And so it was a, it was, there was a lot of pressure in, on, in those early days to, to kind of be as good as, as people needed us to be. And and, uh, without the, the time and, and experience that, I guess we could have had if we'd have built up to it more slowly. Um, and we were suddenly on state, you know, we were doing festivals. Like we, I remember we were doing uh, Reading and Leeds 2000 and I, and I got out of the van and we were on next <laughs> and oh. I look up and there's elbow. Yeah. And they're on, they're on stage right now, elbow sounding absolutely phenomenal which they even then they they were this they sounded they might as well been uh, have been pink floyd you know it just sounded so wide and deep and had so many layers it was it was amazing and and i knew we were going on straight after them and we we'd barely played a gig i mean we'd barely played live at all I'd done a load of duo stuff with gal but never with the full band and it was completely like seat of the you know, edgy seat sort of stuff for us. We we had mm-hmm. no idea, and so we were kind of having to become the band that we needed to be in those circumstances. But like because of that pressure and because of having to do it, it kind of forced the evolution of the band really quickly and strongly. Like we were having to live up to bands like Elbow, yeah, even though we had hardly ever done it before. You know, this absurd situation, and we did and we got better and better and better really quickly because we bloody had to, you know, there was no choice. Uh, So yeah, it was, it was quite an amazing sort of um, ramp up to, well, certainly up to the next album, Ether song, which was a real (laughs) kind of opus. It was really big and epic and, and, and the, and the tour for that tour was amazing, you know, and really massive and had a huge lighting show and also, and and in front of massive crowds and it was a big, big thing. So when I think about like you know being in Gail's kitchen two years earlier, having never <laughs> sung through a PA in my life, to like sold out shows at Brixton Academy and the main stage at you know at Glastonbury. Oh, it's insane, insane, isn't it? It, it really um, is. You know, what a ride! It is absolutely mad. You know, yeah. That tour for for um, the Optimist went on for how long? You must have done a couple of years of that, did you? I think it must have been a good like fifteen. To 18 months I'd say um I remember like definitely by the end of it thinking that we were we were all kind of you know that thing where you've been on tour for a long time and you are properly like on another planet you know because right you just haven't stopped and you've kind of stopped living a normal like you know you're you're the life that your friends and your family are having is no longer anything like the life you're leading. You're you're just in and out of hotels, on and off buses. You're in and out of towns every night. You're being kind of massively energised by these big crowds and all this attention. And then you're suddenly completely alone and you're away from your friends and family. And it's like you, you, you've got that kind of utter roller coaster life. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think like... Again, you know, we were just exhausted by that because we, you know, we had no build up to that. It just suddenly was happening. And and, and then two years later, we were kind of spat out and, and uh, <laughs> you know, suddenly trying to like come up with it again. Like that's like, like we had the label. And also what had happened was the guy that signed us 
the the optimist did so well like it sold so well on on um, source he got headhunted by virgin to run right. virgin records and so he took us with him and said right you you're kind of going to feel the power of virgin because you know i'm going to make sure that you guys get looked at so ether song was like a whole nother step up again of of kind of that ma- now suddenly total major label expectations and kind of it it no longer was a surprise that it was doing well it needed to do well that was the yeah, change yes yeah. and so that was another big 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 step but i think when i listened back to ether song i think it was another really strong bit of work that could have so easily not been i mean that's incredibly difficult position most artists will will always say you know coming up with the next thing is is always going to be a struggle did you feel that at the time or were you were you still writing freely and songs were flowing yeah i luckily the writing was was there a hundred percent like i was i was more confident writing the stuff for ether song than i had been even with the optimist i was feeling like this is my time this is my chance i can really explore my art and really be brave and kind of confident to to express myself here Mm -hmm. so the writing was 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 really strong i think the hardest thing was we started in in chris difford's studio in in heliocentric and we um we begun that record sort of in a way like the same way we'd made the optimist um thinking okay we'll just kind of do it again but with all this new material and see what happens and it weirdly just didn't it just didn't work it was like it just wasn't that the, sonically it wasn't up to the material somehow the, right. the material needed to kind of go somewhere new uh, uh, or the or the production needed to match the material and be braver and somehow the optimist part 2 which is what it was beginning to sound like just wasn't floating our boats like it, artistically it was like nah we that is not exciting exciting that is we've already done that uh, mm-hmm. and it didn't feel like it, i could just see it wasn't going to happen it just wasn't going to fire up again so we did you know we at the time it felt a bit crazy but we kind of shut up shop on on our own production in ryan we were like right let's go and have a look at this guy called tony hoffer who was a producer in la who was working with um, who had he just done? He'd done a record by Supergrass. He'd just right. finished the record yeah. by Supergrass. But he had a much more like fuzzy, energetic, kind of raucous sound going on that we liked the idea of because we knew we also had that within us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went to Los Angeles and made a record with him uh, and a whole load of amazing players like Brian Wright on drums, who played with Air. Uh, we had Justin Meldal Johnson on bass, who's Beck's bass player, yeah. who's, who's a who's an amazing bass player and, and producer. Um, Dave Palmer on keyboards, who stayed a really good friend of ours and who we we still work with occasionally. Uh, and we had Tony Hoffer on on the desk, and so suddenly we were in the sound factory in Los Angeles with this kind of bunch of super musicians making this crazy, like sonic mad soup that became ether song. Uh, and, and it really was just ether song came out of us just jamming with these guys. Really. Right. So a lot was written in, did, did you write more material in, in LA? I would say it was all based around mini discs that I'd, that I had taken with me that I'd done at home. So like, the song itself was stuff that I'd written mm-hmm. and that Gail had, had already knew and it was obviously part of as well and had already worked out some parts. But really, the the way it was being presented, it was by, it was like being re-digested um, completely yeah. Yeah. by this kind of temporary but very exciting band that we had become in the studio for a couple of weeks. And it just felt like a massive, chaotic jam that all the time that, that Tony was somehow managing to capture. Um, and then we took it all back to London with Tony and, 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 and tried to kind of like find the album inside it. Unpick it. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Literally yeah. unpicking it. And you know how, how we did it and how Tony did it. I don't even know. Cause it was, it started out as complete chaos, but somehow there was a record in there and, um, and a really good one. So, so um, yeah. Anyway, I guess I guess 
what I'm pleased about is that we we still managed to make a super strong artistic record on that second one when we could have played it very safe and just tried to make the optimist part two you know yeah I mean I always look at that album as a really exciting album and it does fly <laughs> it really does and and it's it, it it and live a lot of those songs really rock don't they um yeah interestingly the the way the band looks like it's gone over the last few years you you always come back to recording new material and and it doesn't seem that you have maybe two years off between an album two or three years yeah generally speaking we've been fairly tight on that you know we've kind of had that two-year um turnaround of like making a rec make a record put it out tour it for 18 months come home make another one do it again mm -hmm. do it again and we've been you know i think funnily enough right now is the longest we've had for for a really long time i mean i can kind of see i can kind of see that we hopefully will make and be able to put out a record next year that would have been 2018 2019 three years yeah that would yeah. have been over three years um which is a really long time for us um yeah it's a long time not to to be doing it isn't it i mean i know it's not I know you're doing a lot of stuff in between, but yeah, I'm, I, we're always eagerly waiting those albums. And the other thing that I, your, your hit rate on those albums, in as much as the quality, always seems to be really high. Um, when you're writing now, do you see um, the old Ollie in those songs, or are, are you a new, more improved version that can cut the mustard quicker? Um. Wow, yeah, that's a really good question, man. Um, I guess I definitely, there's a kind of inner core of expressing something to do with the human condition that is the old Ollie, like that is the same guy that was doing it on The Optimist, mm -hmm. and I'm still doing it now. But I can see that my shell, my kind of shell of experience is 20 years older and i can i can really see it myself in my in what i write now i'm much better at cutting through the fat you know right. i'm much better at just identifying whether something has legs yeah uh, i think i'm much better at that than, than than i used to be and i suppose the songs are the expressions of someone in their in is hopefully sort of midlife now rather than rather than their early 20s you know yeah, yeah. Uh, it's clearly has moved on but i'm always amazed at how consistent the themes always are like even now you know yes they're they're them they're being dealt with maybe in a slightly more mature way but the themes of, of that whole kind of um, existential crisis of being a human being and, and all the poetry and everything that comes through that, that's very me and that hasn't really changed. <laughs> you know, no, I always no. think it's a bit like Woody Allen always seemed to make this weirdly make the same movie, but like from different angles, but it was, he was always asking the same questions. And I think it's a bit, in a way, it's a bit like that kind of, that kind of take on on making your art is the question might never really change but the way you ask it changes you know yeah there's so many great artists that i mean randy newman has this song called um what was it i keep writing the same song over and over and over again and and you do hear the themes when 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 you really like an artist you you kind of need that theme to repeat all through their career but I don't know, there's something that gets thrown, something a little extra that gets thrown in each time that keeps you hooked. Yeah, I, lo I love that as well. I, I love that. I mean, I'm a big Joni Mitchell fan, of, or certainly of her, her records, and um, I love the way she just kept peeling back that layer on the, uh, in, on, on the same sort of ideas and questions all the time, getting cl closer and closer to some sort of answer in a way. Um, mm. But of course, you never, maybe you never really get that answer, but that that journey of get trying to get to that answer throws up so many interesting things that you keep coming back to that maybe the answers aren't actually what's important you know yeah yeah i mean joni mitchell's a great one to look at really because you you hear the young joni mitchell and it's fantastic you know she was amazing but as she got older 
and and right up to say the Travelogue album. I don't know if you've got that with the orchestra. Yeah. Her voice singing the same songs. It, it just it's beautiful and it it's got some real gravitas that it didn't have perhaps in the same way 40 years previously. Oh man, I, I just think she's just the ultimate kind of, um, if you're talking about that journey of, of watching someone mature into something just phenomenal, she's the one, like how, mm. how her voice, just, just the tone of her voice got so gravelly and broken, but oh. just as beautiful and just, yeah. and, and her, her ability to confidently spin a lyric it just got more and more extreme so yes there's the early journey that i think lots of people fall in love with this pretty sort of angelic folky singer and it's all very it's, it's almost a bit cliched and very 60s but i think the journey that that is really interesting and that is the great artist kind of starts in the late 70s and really through the 80s even into the 90s oh, yeah. you know i know i know some of those records have uh, the 80s ones and the 90s ones sound definitely sound like they're from that time which can be hard to get over at first but my god the songwriting is so good what's your favorite Joni album then if you had to pick i mean i've always loved hijira which i think yeah. was about 76 which is to me which is where that's when she truly bought into herself as a total artist you know just like i am going down this road and, and you can either come with me or you or don't but i you know what i don't give a shit this is what's <laughs> happening and i think it's beautiful and of course it is from that moment on to me it stopped being about the pretty girl with the guitar and it turned into something else you know and it's mm. like whoa you know, she's right up there with Dylan at that point, I think. And yeah. Um, wow, yeah, what a, what an artist. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Ollie, it's been fantastic talking to you. And um, will you give Gail our best and, and Rob and Ed? And um, we look forward to seeing you maybe at the end of the year, uh, but we'll, we'll be at the concert next time you're playing Canterbury or London, we'll be there. Brilliant. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully these gigs at the end of year are going to happen. If not, then hope, you know, as soon as possible. Uh, and we are desperate, obviously desperate to get together as a band and, and just play again. And I think when they finally do happen and when gigs finally do happen, the great thing is it's going to feel better than it ever did. Because I just think everyone, including the bands and the audiences, are going to be so appreciative of it i i expect nothing short of just 24 7 partying for the next decade once <laughs> yeah. we can do it you know? uh, euphoria i think is what we're gonna feel isn't it and it really uh, it's gonna be the roaring 20s isn't it at some point it's got to happen so that was ollie knights from turing breaks singer songwriter great guitarist lovely chap if you enjoyed the show please go online and review it I believe a five-star review helps us to get heard. You've been listening to Tuned with Alistair Atkin.